morning. Thank you very much, Remy, for the invitation. So very nice sort of cross paths, two, two gens, I guess, one gen apart uh, at Stanford with, with Gary Fackman and uh, going back to visit Stanford many times after I left, I got a chance to, to get to know Remy. So delighted to be here. I've never been to the Diabetes Center here before, so fantastic to come. Uh, for any of you that don't see a word in the title that's interesting, feel free to hit the door. Uh, most of us have an interest in at least some of these things, and I'm hoping to say, to tell you uh, at least a little bit about connectivity uh, between these, these aspects of the autoimmune response. And uh, for those of you who don't work on type 1 diabetes, I hope you see uh, connections and parallels to other areas of interest, including type 2 diabetes, uh, which I think is going to show a big role for the microbiome and its regulation, as well as other autoimmune syndromes. So as uh, Remy uh, explained, our interest has been in, in autoimmunity, uh, and I hope to tell you a bit today about our work on genetic polymorphisms in the context of uh, type 1 diabetes, as well as uh, surprising roles for sexual dimorphism in these diseases, uh, host-environment interactions, and we've worked both in mouse models in an effort to try to dissect mechanism, and as I'll get to toward the end of the talk, are trying now to bring some of this information into translation into human longitudinal uh, prospective studies. So as you uh, likely know, type 1 diabetes has very strong evidence for genetic risk. Uh, this is odds ratios for many, many different uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms that have been identified over more than a 30-year period, but it's actually 40 years ago uh, when we learned that the HLA haplotypes were the strongest genetic uh, predictor of type 1 diabetes risk, and they remain so accounting for about 50% of the heritable risk for this disease. You can see that many of these bars are really quite stubby in height, representing their small effect size or individual small effects on the phenotype. So we're really looking at complex phenotypes that are genetically conferred by many different components. Um, and in addition to, to, uh, to HLA, which clearly is, is critical for directing T cells uh, to see particular kinds of antigens, Many of the variants uh, shown here are associated with genes that we know control immunity, although the vast majority of these variants are actually in intergenic regions and not, not coding variants themselves. So the, so the dissection of what they actually do mechanistically is going to be a long slog. There's no, no question about that. Um, I mentioned the small effect size. Even in the aggregate, if an individual was to inherit risk alleles at all of these 50 or so loci, uh, it still doesn't fully account for the familial risk, the higher relative risk of having a first-degree relative, for example, with the disease. So there's clearly missing, missing density, as the physicists would say, um, in, in these, uh, these studies. And what I'd like to suggest is that one of the key things that we need to try to understand are gene-gene interactions within this complex interplay. Uh, of, uh, of components, and also gene by environment interactions, and I, I think of environment writ rather large, uh, and anything that modifies the behavior of, of genes in individuals. So another feature that has really been uh, key in the, in the study and treatment of many autoimmune diseases is that so many of them are strongly sex-biased. Uh, and just showing you here the relative proportion of the statistogram of females in green to males in, in uh, blue for the prevalence of a variety of autoimmune diseases, uh, including Sjogren's, uh, lupus, uh, myasthenia gravis, RA, etc. So this has been known for, for decades, and anybody who looks after these patients is very well aware of this issue. So what are the causes of some of these differences? It's, it's remarkably poorly understood, despite the, the clinical impact uh, of this information. Clearly, there are uh, sex hormones and the peptide hormones that propagate their, their uh, secretion. Uh, there are differences that are encoded in, in XX or XY uh, karyotypes that are clearly important to these effects. And I think more and more, we're going to begin to appreciate uh, that, that the biological property of sex actually differentially interprets certain responses to environmental triggers uh, and is uh, intimately associated with epigenetic modifications in gene expression. So these are very early days in these studies, but I think that these two areas are going to be really uh, fruitful for trying to understand these sex biases in autoimmunity. So um, likely all of these complex factors will be, uh, be interactors in the context of, of sex biases. But uh, as of today, we really have limited mechanistic understanding of why this is the case, and we certainly have no uh, viable therapeutic intervention strat strategies that are predicated on that knowledge. So this is a big, uh, in my view, uh, uh, unmet medical need and, and mechanistically uh, 
poorly understood. So we think of type 1 diabetes as being an exception to this rule because on, on average there's general sex parity in incidence of type 1 diabetes, but I just wanted to mention uh, some data maybe to expand the way that we think about sex effects in autoimmune diseases, um, even if it, it's not associated with differences in, uh, in frequency of disease. So here are some data from about 10 years ago looking at disease transmission to the offspring of parents that have type 1 diabetes. And as you can likely see here, the risk to the child is far higher if the child's father has type 1 diabetes versus the mother. So this is evidence that there's sex effects in the transmission risk for type 1 diabetes to the next generation. Um, similarly, some more recent data from a, a large JAMA study, uh, which is looking at uh, various risk factors that predict progression to type 1 diabetes for at-risk individuals. Uh, of course, HLA haplotype, as I mentioned earlier, is a, is a very high predictor of risk. Uh, seroconversion, and that's referring to seroconversion to the presentation of autoantibodies against specific beta cell components, of course, beta cells being the key target in this disease. But a, another feature uh, shown here is that sex uh, is, a, is, a, is a risk factor with regard to progression in individuals who already have multiple islet autoantibodies. So these are other sort of features of the disease, its presentation and tra transmission, and perhaps its immune pathogenesis that are beginning to display some sex biases. So what's the, the evidence for environmental modifiers in type 1 diabetes? And I could have put on this slide almost any autoimmune and, uh, and, and inflammatory disease. This could be inflammatory bowel disease. It could be asthma. It could be autism spectrum disorder, a whole variety of different diseases that are showing these really alarming trends over the past 50 years of enormous increase in incidence. These are data uh, collated by the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation uh, from, from Finland, uh, Sweden, which uh, have very high uh, native frequencies of type 1 diabetes, as well as uh, in, in Colorado from the Barbara Davis Center uh, and in Germany. So you see this really remarkable rising incidence um, in all of these different jurisdictions. And in fact, the greatest contributor to this increase is very early onset presentation. So it's not just that the frequency of these diseases is rising, but the age at onset for type 1 diabetes is getting younger and younger, which of course ensures that, that you have risk of complications earlier in life. So these are really alarming trends. And of course, trends like this over a short period of time are not compatible with a, with a genetic underpinning since our genes don't change that fast. So these kinds of data really call out for dynamic environmental factors that have been changing over relatively short periods of time that in the context of genetically at-risk individuals are giving rise to a higher frequency and earlier age of onset uh, for this disease. So as uh, Remy, Remy mentioned, and I'm sure uh, all of you in this room know, there's a tremendous interest in the role of, uh, of the commensal communities that inhabit our mucosal surfaces, or the so-called microbiota largely comprised of, of commensal organisms, although uh, sometimes they can be pathobionic or biotic. Uh, and this, this interface is, uh, I think, uh, a key way in which we regulate, if we think of ourselves as containing microbiomes, which I now do, I used to think of it as other, and now I think of it as self, um, that these, uh, these microbiota really regulate our interactions with, with the environment. So this is just a, a slice uh, through a sagittal section through the, the colon, uh, and you can see the single-cell thick epithelial lining of enterocytes. Uh, the the uh, blue is the mucus that they secrete, and then, of course, in the lumen, you have an extremely high density of bacteria, whereas uh, on the blood, blood surface side of this uh, interface, it's virtually sterile. So it's a remarkable uh, interaction site uh, for, for our lives, our, our immune system and metabolism to be interacting with very, very high concentrations of uh, a diverse array of bacteria. So we've known for, for many years um, that the microbiota in the, in the gut, both in the small and large intestine, is, is key in terms of our metabolic demands. Uh, these organisms produce vitamins that, that we need. They're very important in harvesting nutrients from what we consume. Uh, and it's becoming increasingly clear that they generate a whole series of metabolites, and we, we don't yet fully understand what these are, including short-chain fatty acids and bioamines, which are, have uh, potent uh, abilities to signal both in terms of our metabolism 
and our immune system. These organisms are also key in, the, uh, in metabolizing toxins and drugs uh, and are of great interest uh, in pharma now to try to appreciate compositions of bacteria that may render individuals lower or higher safety levels for particular kinds of uh, drug therapies. So I, I think that within a short number of years, um, it will be uh, generally agreed upon in the scientific community that the gut microbiome is, in, in a sense, another liver uh, that is existing on the inside of the lumen uh, in terms of what it, what it produces. Over the past decade or so, uh, very much with thanks to the uh, ability to work in fully germ-free mice and then colonize them <coughs> in a selective way, uh, it's become possible to appreciate that the organisms in the gut are absolutely essential for the normal development of the immune system, not just the mucosal immune system, but the systemic immune system. Uh, these microorganisms uh, stimulate the development of, of T cells and B cells and, uh, and call myeloid cells to that uh, mucosal interface. And they also are very important, for example, for regulating the, the nature of T cells that differentiate uh, in the mucosal space. They are very important for limiting the growth of pathogens because they're occupying the niches and helping to, uh, to compete out pathogens that might otherwise occupy them. So Clostridium difficile is a great example of such a pathogen that thrives on a low diversity environment uh, of, micro of microbes in the gut. Um, and as we're learning, they are very essential for uh, preventing inflammation at this epithelial barrier and, and maintaining a, a state of uh, relative tolerance or detente. Uh, at, the, uh, at the epithelium. So the, the first uh, set of data that I wanted to present is, uh, is really focused on, um, on innate immunity. There's been a, a lot uh, done and said, rightly so, about the role of T-cell responses in, uh, in uh, autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, where we know it's, it's critical that specific T-cells recognize islet antigens. Uh, they also recruit uh, B-cells to produce those autoantibodies I mentioned. But there's been a little bit less understood about the contributions of innate immunity to, um, to potentiating type 1 diabetes. So I wanted to tell you a recent, uh, a recent story out of our lab and some, some newer data that link these things together. And uh, as you'll see, the polymorphism that we've detected is very much influenced by the inflammatory state of the host. Uh, this work is all being done. Uh, in the mouse model, the NOD mouse, which I'm sure you're, you've heard of before, um, which displays uh, tissue-specific inflammation of the islets and destruction of the insulin-secreting beta cells. It, no, certainly no, none of these models are perfect, and, and, and the NOD mouse isn't either, but it uh, displays many similarities with the human disease. It shares a number of these genetic risk elements that I mentioned earlier, including a remarkable similarity at the MHC class 2, um, locus and, in fact, uh, amino acids that bind uh, peptides uh, in, the, in the clefts of these molecules. Uh, there's also shared risk alleles for CTL4 and IL-2 between humans and the mice. They uh, do display the autoantibodies against islet components that I mentioned earlier, so you can see, as I'll show you uh, later on, antibodies against uh, insulin, for example. Clearly, these diseases are T-cell mediated in, in both, uh, both humans and mouse. Um, one of the, the notable features that distinguishes the nod from the human, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, incidence of disease in humans is, is roughly equal between the sexes. It's not the case in the nod where about twice as many females succumb as males. Uh, but just to emphasize, this is a spontaneous disease in this model. You don't need to vaccinate it uh, to prime a T-cell response. It happens uh, on its own. So for many years, as Remy mentioned, we've been interested in trying to isolate and identify genes in the NOD model that confer risk for type 1 diabetes uh, in hopes of identifying more information about the mechanisms that underlie uh, these issues. And uh, this is not in press anymore. It's uh, now published. But um, I wanted to tell you a story about one of the loci in chromosome 11 that we've called IDD4. Uh, I won't go through the knockdown, drag out 10 years of mapping that these kinds of uh, studies uh, used to take. Uh, thankfully, we now have CRISPR mutations that are going to, I think, make it a good bit faster. But here's an example of the blood, sweat, and tears and a, and a final uh, output from that. We were able to refine the size of this locus using positional cloning to a reasonably small size, two megabases, that allowed us to do an oligonucleotide capture of all the genomic DNA from two uh, relevant strains, NOD, and another uh, diabetes-resistant strain called NOR, and then do full genome sequencing through those through that region. 
Um, the, uh, the bars that are, that are in green are coding regions, and those that are in orange are intergenic regions. Uh, and the height of the bar represents the similarity between the two strings of interest here. So you can see that, uh, thankfully, there was quite a bit of similarity between the two uh, strings being compared through much of this locus, uh, which fell down uh, by the time we got to the telomeric portion. Uh, and so it was here that we focused a lot of our more refined effort to try to identify uh, a gene associated with the disease. And I think that we've done that, uh, and that the, the gene that's providing risk at this locus appears to be uh, a nod-like receptor, that's the other kind of nod, uh, the inflammatory uh, receptors uh, that associate with, uh, with the caspase machinery. So this one uh, is shown here, the, the, uh, the, the domains uh, shown in the, in the, in the gray uh, bars. Uh, so here's Nod up at the top. This is an interesting uh, NLR uh, receptor because it has its own caspase recruitment domain. Its native ligands, its native ag uh, agonists are not known. Uh, in some mouse strains, it responds to anthrax lethal toxin, which was probably not a big evolutionary driver for uh, the development of these genes, the evolution of these genes in mice. Uh, but the notable thing for us was that the diabetes resistance strain uh, that we used for the comparator in all of these studies uh, displayed a, uh, a splice variation that led to uh, an up upstream uh, stop codon, predicting the production of a protein that would be bereft of the, the caspase recruitment domain. So given that these, the, pro the job of these proteins is to enter into an inflammasome complex and recruit the caspase, uh, it's very likely then we predicted that this version, the diabetes-resistant allele, was in fact a null allele or massively hypomorphic, maybe even a dominant negative. So we had to construct uh, an assay uh, to try to read out the functionality of, the, uh, of these two types of, uh, of NAP1. Uh, and we did it by uh, with a colleague, a microbiology colleague at, uh, at the University of Toronto by uh, transfecting uh, CHO cells with all of the necessary components and comparing the behavior of the NOD-encoded allele to the diabetes-resistant NOR-encoded allele and the gold standard, which happens to come from BALB-C, that's, a, that's a, super, a super responder. So we're able to show in this assay that, uh, as we predicted, I won't show you the data, but the, the NOR allele does uh, make a truncated protein, and it's very difficult to uh, identify its functionality, at least in this assay. So we have more to do on function because we really need to identify what the normal agonists are for this protein but this would appear to be uh, a functional polymorphism then. So um, some of the other interesting features about it, as you likely know, uh, when one treats uh, an animal or a human uh, with broad-spectrum antibiotics, in this case the treatment that we used was vancomycin given in the water to our NOD mice, uh, this is a display of the, um, the high-throughput sequence data of the bacterial 16S gene that we performed in a, a group of uh, non-female mice that were either treated with vancomycin or not. And this uh, radial phylogenetic diagram is meant to display uh, differences between the two conditions in non-females. The red uh, indicates uh, taxa that are more abundant in the antibiotic-treated animals, and in green, more abundant in the non-treated animals. So it's not surprising, of course, this is more or less a neutron bomb for your uh, microbiome. Uh, and that these, uh, these animals would display effects in the composition as a consequence. Uh, we also notice, and this is background for what I'll tell you in a minute, uh, that treatment with vancomycin in our hands potentiates type 1 diabetes in both sexes of animals. Uh, they're displayed, uh, displayed for you here. So the males are in blue and the females in red. Uh, the treated animals in solid bars and the non-treated controls in the stippled bars, it's very easy to see uh, this dramatic potentiation in the males, a strong p-value. Uh, it took a, a reasonably large sample size to see this effect in females, but we do as well. So the vancomycin treatment dramatically remodels the composition of the gut microbiome, uh, also reduces its biomass substantially, and uh, potentiates diabetes. So then we asked, uh, when we use that perturbation, that vancomycin treatment perturbation, what's the behavior of this, this uh, NALP1B allele? Does it, does it still provide protection, uh, which I, I haven't actually shown you yet? So here's a group of females. Uh, those in red are the NOD parental strain. Those in black are the NOD parental strain with a congenic introgression of about three megabases of DNA from the NOR strain which includes that NLRP1 gene that I mentioned to you. 
And here, uh, vancomycin-treated mice are shown in the, in the solid bars and non-treated in the stippled bars. So I think um, what you can do, and here I've just shown the, um, the, the p-values for the relationships between treated and untreated. So I showed you before that vancomycin treatment elevates diabetes in non-females, still does here. And it also uh, elevates, uh, it, it reduces the protection that's afforded by the, uh, this uh, NALP1 allele uh, when you treat with, with the vancomycin. So you see the difference between the, the black stippled and the black uh, solid bars displaying that difference. But in the males, it's a different story. I showed you before, uh, and shown again here in red, that treatment with vancomycin for nod males dramatically uh, accelerates their diabetes and increases the incidence of diabetes, as is shown here. But in the NLRP1 congenic uh, nod males, the protection from diabetes that's conferred by that locus is not abrogated by the vancomycin treatment. So this is a gene by sex, by environment interaction. So you see that the perturbation of changing the microbiome is having a different effect based upon sex. Uh, if those uh, animals have inherited a particular allele uh, at this inflammasome uh, component. So the, another uh, treatment that we tried based on some data we published uh, some years ago was to treat uh, nod mice uh, and uh, nod congenic mice with recombinant type 1 interferon, and this is uh, by collaboration with Biogen IDEC using their, uh, their uh, clinical grade material. So you can see that when you take nod females uh, and you treat them with recombinant interferon, we, we treated them weekly, uh, starting at four weeks of age, uh, up to 200 days of age, we see no significant effect uh, on diabetes incidence or, or latency. But in the case of non-females uh, that have inherited this uh, protective allele from the NOR strain, uh, and you see their, the protection that they, uh, they enjoy from diabetes here, when we treat those with interferon, much of the protective value of this allele is now abrogated. So again, another modification to the inflammatory environment that modifies the behavior of the genetic variation. So the way that we've been thinking about this is that there are, of course, many different ways to generate these inflammatory cytokines in myeloid cells, endothelial cells, epithelial cells, uh, IL-1 and IL-18 should be here as well. NLRP1 is but one of those, and as I mentioned, the natural ligands are, are as yet unclear to us. Uh, and then I gave you examples of, of two other inflammatory mediators mediated through the interferon receptors or likely through uh, TLR4 recognition of uh, gram-negative bacteria in the case of uh, antibiotic treatment. So in the, in the steady state, it would appear that uh, animals that now inherit this null allele uh, in this, encoding this protein NLRP1 at least have some protection from this inflammatory locus because they no longer are generating uh, signals to, to generate these inflammatory cytokines through NLRP1. But when we kind of step on the gas uh, on either of these two alternative pathways for generating inflammatory stimuli, then that, uh, which, which enhances uh, the throughput of these, uh, these pathways, this uh, protection is no longer sufficient. So what I wanted to show you from this story is a, is a genetic variation that we, we sweated hard to identify, uh, only to find that this genetic variation, although potent uh, in the steady state with our lovely protected, nicely fed and housed specific pathogen-free mice, uh, when we augment the inflammatory conditions in which the immune system is living, um, this genetic variation loses its ability to protect. So to make the point uh, that genetic risk is really a context-dependent phenomenon, so I think it's very difficult to study it uh, in isolation. So as uh, Remy mentioned, uh, and I'll try to go through some of this uh, reasonably quickly because it, it was published, um, we became interested a number of years ago um, in the interactions between the microbiome and the, and the host in the context of the non-model, as well as the sex effects that I've been interested in from a genetic perspective for many, many years. Um, and um, I just wanted to, to provide you with some uh, newer data as well today. So these are, uh, these are data from, I don't know, about probably five, six hundred animals in our colony, just looking at, at uh, the time of diabetes onset on the x-axis and number of mice. 
So the breeding females are shown in the red trace and the virgin females shown in the black. And you can see that there's a significant change in age at onset, whether those females are, are mated um, or whether they're kept virgin. So that's, that's some data that we have noticed just from sort of meta-analysis of our own colony. And um, we and other groups have shown for many years, as I mentioned earlier, that there's a really striking difference in, in uh, diabetes incidence between males and females under specific pathogen-free colonized conditions of females in red and the males in black. So uh, a few years ago, um, we were able to bring our non-mice into a fully germ-free environment by embryo re-derivation. Uh, and we were actually doing this for a completely different reason. I was going to take all of those congenic mice that I showed you and re-derive them into the germ-free condition, and we started working on that. But lo and behold, in the, in the nod um, parental strain, the sex bias that we had loved and studied for so many years went away. So that suggested that at least, uh, and we did some, some colonization with some limited diversity flora as well as complex flora, and we're able to show that this sex bias uh, in type 1 diabetes requires a reasonably complex microbial community. We don't yet know what are all the components that are required, but it, uh, it, it, can't, be, um, it can't be mimicked with just a few organisms, at least so far. So we, we did an extensive uh, 16S um, microbiome analysis and, and principal coordinates analysis to try to reduce the complexity of these massive data tables that one gets. And one of the questions we had was whether or not males and females differ in their microbiome uh, composition. Uh, and given that they're living in the same environment, this now is specific pathogen-free environment, of course. And also to ask about the developmental kinetics uh, of such a difference if it exists. So what's shown here are principal components that, uh, that account for about 80% of the variance between these six different groups uh, that we analyzed. Um, and the, the color codes here match those of the little balls in the, in the display. So in the weaning age animals, males and females uh, shown here, we can't really dis discriminate statistically significant differences in the microbiomes of these very young animals. But as they move uh, to mating age, from puberty around six weeks of age, we begin to see uh, aspects of the composition that distinguishes males and females, uh, and that becomes quite clear by the time they're fully adult. These are 14 week olds, but we get more or less the same data couple weeks prior to that. So these data suggested that males and females indeed do have uh, distinct microbiota, at least after puberty. And so we did a, a series of experiments, which I won't detail because they're published, where we took the microbiota from the cecum of either adult male or adult female mice, and we gavaged young female recipients just at weaning. So we did it on the day of weaning, and we repeated it once more the next day, and then we just left them alone. So uh, 10 weeks or more later, when we evaluated the composition of those recipient females' microbiota, you could still see durable changes in the composition that, had, uh, that could distinguish uh, either male donor uh, sequel contents or female donor sequel contents. So that was surprising. We weren't sure we were going to get much of a change since we were starting with already colonized uh, weaning animals. Um, yeah, so this was a donor sex-specific change in composition that was quite durable. We also were very surprised to see changes in the serum testosterone levels of these animals. These are all females shown in this display. Uh, so females uh, at 14 weeks in green that had not been perturbed, or at 7 or 14 weeks that had been given male microbiota in blue or female microbiota in red. So this was a relatively durable effect on their testosterone. We've been doing a, quite a bit more work on the hormone side of this. Um, and so far, it appears that the, this uh, testosterone level is actually a consequence of increased production of testosterone in the peripheral tissues. We're now working on the, on the, um, the HP axis to see about the peptide hormones that stimulate its production. But this is uh, one of the key precursors to, testo to uh, testosterone, which is also elevated as a consequence of this microbiome transfer. So sex of the host is, a, is determinate for at least aspects of the microbiome composition. You can uh, transplant these microbiota from one animal to another and alter the recipient's composition, which, uh, as shown here, leads to changes in their sex hormones. So this was a real who-knew moment, because we, we had no idea that the microbiome would actually have an impact on uh, uh, sex steroid levels. Yeah, Doug. Can I just, um, what is the 
timing of, the, of this increase in the hormone? Is it, uh, and is it stable? So here I'm showing it at seven weeks of age. So they were gavaged at three weeks. Uh, and then uh, these, these we just started to do with the same timeline and that it matches what I'm showing you here for actual testosterone. So within four weeks, we haven't looked younger than that, but from four, from, uh, four weeks after the gavage to 10, 11 weeks after the gavage, we can see a reasonably sustained uh, change in their testosterone levels. And I should point out, since... What about for the, the one on the right? So, we, so yeah. we, have, we have fewer uh, longitudinal data on these measures. Um, these are shown to you here at 12 weeks of age, so a reasonable period of time after the after the garage. How long this is sustained, we haven't followed it out to that asymptotic you know, decay. Um, so one might need to do additional garages to maintain... But uh, the key thing, of course, was that this microbiome transfer at weaning had a profound effect on type 1 diabetes uh, many, many, many weeks later. So uh, in blue are female animals that received that male microbiota just at weaning. So that was really a striking level of protection, 70% reduction in disease, far higher than virtually every genetic locus I've ever mapped. I mean, the only thing that would, that would uh, have this kind of robust protective effect would be, would be H2, would be the NHC itself. So we've done um, some more work on this on this timeline. This, these are a set of data from uh, female mice that received male microbiota um, at puberty at six to seven weeks of age when they received the gavage. So the unmanipulated females are shown in the black. The blue trace is the females that received the male material uh, at weaning, as you see here. And then in red uh, is the new that received the, the microbiota from males at six weeks of age. And so in our hands, this is a much less robust effect uh, on the diabetes um, pathogenesis, suggesting that this very early stage uh, in development of the animals is the window uh, for manipulation. And obviously, I would like to see us think about humans that way as well. Um, this is anti-insulin autoantibodies, just another, uh, another biomarker of autoimmunity in this model. Uh, so shown here is uh, our females that received uh, male microbiota at weaning. Uh, shown in the blue bars, you can see the, the dramatic decrease uh, versus females that received uh, no microbiota. And then in the yellow trace uh, are females that received this microbiome transfer but we had implanted into them a slow-release encapsulated formula of flutamide, an androgen receptor antagonist, to ask whether we could show directly that the, that the androgen levels were required for these effects on autoimmunity, and these data would suggest that they are. So, um, time. Um, I thought I would talk a little bit about some metabolomic uh, analysis because we've become quite interested not just in understanding the sort of census taking of, of what are the phylogenetic relationships of these bugs, but what do they do? Because at the end of the day, I think that's what we need to understand. Um, and so these are some data looking at... Oh, sorry. Yes, sorry, please. Before you go on to that, um, at what age do the microbiota of the males and females diverge? Is that also around puberty? Yeah, sorry, I tried to make that point probably too rapidly on a prior slide. So we've sequenced them at three weeks at meaning, at six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 14 weeks. And we can't see any differences in the weaning age mice. But by six weeks, we begin to see them pull apart. And then as they become fully mature, that's even a more robust uh, difference. Right, you so So what changes at puberty is also the sex steroids. So yep. if you give androgens to females, develop the male microbiome? Right. So we are trying to do that in a slightly different way, uh, so see if you like it. So there's this really cool group of four strains of B6 mice um, called the four core mice, where the, uh, the SRY gene that's encoded on the Y, this is a transcription factor that's required for specification of maleness, has actually been moved onto an autosome. So you can have XX females, XX males, because they have SRY on an autosome, and the converse, you have XY females and XY males. The reason that we're doing it in that uh, setting, rather than the, and your experience is a good one too, is to try to appreciate what is uh, directed by the SRY maleness program and what is uh, X chromosome dose, X chromosome encoded genes, etc., because they will still be present in the XX male. So we're trying to get at that same idea and, and doing a, a longitudinal study to look across time in those mice. So I don't have the data yet, but 
Yeah, I share your interests. Uh, so hopefully I have time for this. Uh, so with regard to the cerebetabolome, this is of the mice now, not of the bugs. Um, this is a panel that we ran with 180 or so defined metabolites. So there's an isotope-labeled standard for each of these metabolites. It's done by mass spectroscopy. So this is not open-ended, go for it. This is you know, defined, uh, but, but uh, isotope-labeled standards. So I'm showing you a principal components display where I've com we've compared females that are colonized, SPF males, and uh, the two sexes that are germ-free. So this is trying to ask more globally, what's the impact of colonization with the microbiome on the metabolism, the metabolome, or at least some components of it, of the mice? And I'm displaying about 50% of the variance between these samples. So the, again, I tried to color code. So down here in the blue and the yellow are the germ-free females and males. They don't discriminate all that well from one another. But in the SPF setting, where they're colonized, it becomes easier to discern metabolites on this panel that distinguish male from female. So again, suggesting, um, with, yet with not enough drill down, but that there are relationships between the nature of the, of the organisms that are colonizing uh, these mice and the nature of their metabolism. So um, we've done some uh, clustering. This is an unsupervised uh, clustering analysis where we've taken, I'm just showing you a subset of the impossible to read metabolites on that panel. These are all uh, long chain fats. Most of them are sphingomyelins and, and, and glycolipids and so forth because that's what gave us the strongest signal. And then uh, in, in the column is bacterial taxa uh, that are associated with those. So if you, you drill into these correlations, there appear to be that are reasonably robust, and this is what we're working on now. So the protected state, that is the female that received the male microbiota, uh, is associated with enhanced levels of organisms shown here, uh, and those are associated with reduced levels of these particular uh, phospho and sphingolipids uh, in the protected females. Conversely, there are higher uh, levels of these organisms in females in the non-protected state, and that non-protected state is associated with higher levels of some of these metabolites. So it's early days. We finally got a germ-free setting uh, back and set up in Toronto, and so now we have the opportunity to look at combinations of organisms put into germ-free animals to ask about uh, whether or not we can recapitulate these changes, and uh, in that setting, we're going to use a more open-ended, probably NMR-based uh, metabolite screen uh, where you look for the things that you don't know as well as the things that you do. So I, I think that, that going forward, we're going to need to move away from just sort of taking attendance of who's home and trying to understand what they do. So the take-home from all of these so far um, is, is, again, not what we were looking for that the microbiota, at least in part, uh, can determine features of, uh, of sex steroid hormones. Uh, males have <coughs> testosterone, as we all know, but that's affiliated in some way with the differences between their microbiota and those of the female. Um, and uh, this, uh, this state is associated with greater inflammation and probability of diabetes in the NOD model. So the, the, I wanted to try to uh, see if I could incorporate some work in the human. This has been a, a great uh, sort of paradigm shift for me to really begin to work very closely with clinical colleagues in many countries because there's enormous interest in trying to understand why the frequency of type 1 diabetes is rising and why we're seeing such early onset of disease. And this, of course, requires longitudinal prospective studies, those big expensive ones that are hard to raise money for, um, and in order to, uh, to make the best use of these studies from the immunological perspective, we're going to need some additional tools uh, to be able to track these kids. So uh, our interest is in, uh, with regard to these, these human studies, is to ask what is the, the basis of the communication be between the gut mucosal interaction with, uh, with bacteria shown here again, and this very, very tissue-specific, cell type even specific, T-cell response that obliterates uh, the insulin secretory capacity of individuals with type 1, type 1 diabetes. And the question we're trying to address is whether or not the systemic immune system uh, responds to microbiome changes that are occurring during progression to type 1 diabetes, uh, and or in response to uh, therapy. As you probably know, there's a lot of uh, trials ongoing now with immunomodulatory therapies for type 1 diabetes. 
So these, there are um, a series of very large-scale longitudinal studies uh, that are going on, and this is a, just sort of a cartoon of, of time and beta cell mass. This is probably not true at all. But just to, to mention the, the features we've talked about already, genetic predisposition, which is clearly key, uh, the, that we can see evidence of, uh, of islet-targeted autoimmunity long before disease presents itself with these uh, anti-islet antibodies in humans. Um, and so in, these studies are doing very, very uh, frequent sampling of blood and stool uh, and, and uh, acquiring very, very clitch, uh, rich clinical metadata. Uh, and uh, so we've been working in, in uh, correspondence with them. Here's some data from probably the largest of those studies called the TEDI, Environmental Determinants of Diabetes in the Young. These are some data just published from the TEDI group. This is the age in months of seroconversion to autoantibody-positive status in the kids that are going through this longitudinal study. So, so far, and it's, it's still early days because they only have about 10 years of accrued data on these, on these kids that have been ascertained into the study, there is a peak of autoantibody presentation at about nine months of age. So it's essentially these kids are born with a predisposition to this disease that's uh, evident at a very, very early age. So we need some assessment tools that we can use in very small babies uh, with very small amounts of available blood. So what we've developed um, is an assay uh, using flow cytometry to, to measure the titers and the isotypes and the uh, bacterial specificities of antibodies um, that are uh, responsive to uh, commensal organisms. And I'm very much indebted to my fantastic collaborator, Emma Allen Verco at the University of Guelph in Ontario, who is a true anaerobic microbiologist. She's outstanding. Uh, who has uh, contributed many, many different strains of true human commensals to the Human Microbiome Project. So these are not lab-adapted strains we're using. They actually came uh, right out of poop, and she has the poopiest lab uh, that I know, and they do uh, really fantastic uh, work. So what we've set up is to um, take uh, cultured, and now we can actually, she's taught us, we have our own anaerobic box, and we can culture these organisms as individual species or small consortia of species, and then we, um, we incubate them with a, uh, a serially diluted uh, human sample. It can be serum, and now we're also working on fecal water to look at the mucosal IgAs. We come in with a fluorochrome-labeled anti-isotype antibody to, uh, to pick up and display to us IgG1, 2A, 2B, IgA, etc. And then we read out those responses by flow cytometry. And I, I won't take you through all the metrics in the interest of time, but I do have those data with me if anybody's interested. We've been selecting the bacteria based on a number of criteria, but those, the huge longitudinal studies that I mentioned are investing tens of millions of dollars in deep sequencing of the poop of these kids. Deep and frequent sequencing. So both 16S and metagenomic sequencing. So that is beginning to display changes in, in, in abundance of a whole variety of different organisms as these kids progress toward autoantibody positive status and or diabetes. So we use that information to select organisms that best mirror those identifications in the, in the big sequencing studies, and we either use uh, small pools or single species. So that's the sort of the logic piece of, of how we're doing it. So the question is, does the immune system care? that these changes are taking place. They're seeing lots of changes, and I'm, I'm glad, given the investment, that's very, very important. But we don't have a sense yet whether or not those are immunologically silent or not. So to, to work this, uh, this assay up, uh, we collaborated with colleagues at McGill University who uh, had a study which is now past its sunset, but it has fantastic samples. Uh, healthy control kids new onset type 1 diabetics, so these kids are within six months of presentation, and they're also, uh, Meet Bar Or, a terrific guy, is a, is a neurologist interested in, in MS, so we've also been doing some work with him using this assay in MS. So this is a discrimination analysis I just mentioned slowly, so the, the nature of the subjects, each dot represents a subject, is color-coded, so the healthy control children, the, type, the new onset type 1 diabetes in green, and then the uh, MS uh, kids in red. We're underpowered here. We didn't have enough individuals. This is a discrimination response uh, looking at these kids, and what I wanted, to, looking at their responses to about 10 different organisms. And the, the only point I wanted to make was that these responses discriminate the healthy control kids 
from the nuance and type 1 diabetics and somewhat from the MS uh, groups. Um, and I won't show you all the detailed data, but it's not sort of an up or down thing. There are some responses that are higher in kids with the autoimmune conditions and some responses that are lower. And in fact, I would say that it's a net decrement, really, uh, in antibody responses. But we see the species specificity of these responses, which we didn't really expect to see in the serum of these kids. Uh, so here I'm showing it to you for, um, also we, we did a, a, some, some kids with uh, early onset Crohn's disease, which are the ones shown in yellow. Here each of the balls represents the response of all of the kids in that group to a specific organism. So there's six different organisms shown here. This is total Ig uh, on the top and most of the, most of the action uh, for these responses are, is in the serum IgA response. But hopefully you can see that there are differences uh, in these responses uh, to these organisms that discriminate kids with MS from kids with type 1 diabetes, from healthy controls, and from the Crohn's disease samples. Crohn's is a different setting, right, because you have massive barrier compromise in those kids. Yes, please. Um, do, do they also have elevated testosterone levels? Uh, so I have not yet uh, evaluated any sex steroids in these kids. Um, we do, I'm going to show you that we do see sex effects in the, in the levels of these responses, so I'm applying now to ask uh, for permission to do those tests, but we don't have any of those data yet. E you know, each application is incremental for these ancillary studies, so I don't know yet, but I do have evidence here. Yeah, I included some. So here, um, males are blue, females are uh, green, and, um, oh sorry, males, uh, healthy control males in dark blue, healthy control females in the lighter blue, and then type 1 diabetes males dark green, females light green. So this is total Ig. Um, some discrimination, this is about six different organisms, uh, but for the IgA pool we begin to, to see some differences. So in our hands we always use sex as a covariate yeah, in all of our analysis. We don't aggregate them together, we, we, I mean, we do aggregate them together, but we always test for sex as an independent covariate, and also for age. So there, there, there's a lot of dynamics in these responses, just as there's a lot of dynamics in the change of the gut microbiome, particularly in early life. So it's going to take reasonably large sample sizes, um, as it almost always does uh, in human studies. So um, the, the last data I'll just show you quickly, um, so it maps back to the type 1 diabetes space. So the, as, as many of you know, a trial net is the major NIH-funded umbrella group for uh, interventional trials in type 1 diabetes. And so we've been working with them uh, to try to utilize this approach to looking at, uh, at mucosal and systemic immune responses to commensals in these kids. Um, these are uh, data from a group of children uh, whose eventual outcome, that is progression to type 1 diabetes or not, was already known by TrialNet. It wasn't known by us. And they sent us uh, about 80 samples, which were quite well-aged and sex-matched, for us to perform this study. And the question was, is there anything about these anti-commensal responses that correlates with the later progression to type 1 diabetes? That was, that was our question. Um, so here are the, the progressors, so kids who later uh, became, within six to nine months, uh, became diabetic, and those that did not progress, they all had higher stage LA haplotypes, they were HSS match, matched, as I mentioned, and they all had uh, islet autoantibodies. So at least uh, we're beginning to see some evidence that we can see differences in anti-commensal responses that precede type 1 diabetes uh, development itself, which obviously is a major impact on the, on the metabolism of, of these children. Yeah, so there's several of these organisms in particular that are, are already giving us uh, reasonable um, press-score values for the comparison between the two groups, and so we're, we're drilling into this. We've got another set of 100 samples coming from TrialNet to do a, a full replication um, of the, these kinds of data. So uh, down the line, uh, we're working with a number of these, these cohort studies. There's uh, one based in, in Finland where they have extremely high frequencies of type 1 diabetes. These are kids that are being, the moms are being enrolled. Uh, kids are enrolled from birth then as a consequence of that design. And there's very, very rich uh, biospecimen sampling, urine, blood, uh, feces, and there's quite a bit of uh, microbiome sequencing going on in the context of that study, so we're working with McKellen and our colleagues to, to work on these kids, and there we have paired 
fecal and blood samples taken at the same time. So we can look at the relationship between the mucosal immune response and the systemic one. We're working with TrialNet um, in a clinical trial intervention trial with the anti-CA3 monoclonal antibody treatment, which I, I just find amazing that we're using this in these kids, but it's being done, and so we want to capture as much data as we can. And then our, our colleagues in, uh, in Netherlands are definitely in the vanguard of all of this fecal and microbial therapeutics. As you may remember, they had uh, quite a significant study published in the New England Journal in 2013 where they used whole fecal transplant to teach to treat uh, Clostridium difficile. And it was, even a, despite the small sample size, it was amazing the effect that it had. Uh, so somehow my colleague Max Neuendorp has managed to persuade uh, about 20 or 30 young people, so between the ages of 18 and 21, who've just found out that they have type 1 diabetes. And it, to really hit the jackpot, you can get into Max's trial and sign up to get three colonoscopies over the next, the next six months that will transfer into those individuals either autologous fecal sample, because you kind of have to have the whole procedure, or fecal samples from a uh, matched, healthy, sex-matched donor. Um, New Endorp and colleagues are hoping to see some kind of effect on residual beta cell function. That would be, you know, definitely way out of the park. You know, maybe something the Mets need tonight. Um, but uh, what our interest is, is, is more prosaic, is just to ask in that setting where you give a bolus mucosal infusion of bacteria, do you see a spike or a change in the systemic immune response to those organisms? So it's really much more of a safety question. I'm trying to be quite uh, limited, but they, they are going for it, that's for sure. So I think that, that uh, the Netherlands will remain at the forefront of these microbial therapeutic efforts. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing what they get, uh, they get RMB approval for. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So I, hopefully I, I provided some, um, some evidence uh, and at least approaches that we're taking to try to link together uh, these features, which I think uh, particularly the issue of sexual dimorphism is really uh, the, uh, an unsung mechanistic goldmine for understanding autoimmunity and how it's controlled. And now that I think we've provided some evidence, at least in a mouse model, uh, that there is a remarkable relationship between the, the microbiome and the gut and at least some aspects of sex hormone levels, uh, perhaps that's going to be an interacting factor uh, as well. I'm also hopeful, of course, that um, you know, these immunomodulatory therapies I mentioned, like ATCD3, you know, are they having effects on the, the host's interaction with, uh, with the gut microbiome? And is there an opportunity down, downstream to define commensal microbes and to define commensal microbial products that could be actionable targets for, for therapy. So um, I have fantastic colleagues. I'm having a heck of a lot of fun doing the science, even if we all struggle for money at times. Uh, members of my lab, uh, Janet Markle, who's now across town at, at Rockefeller, uh, was a fantastic graduate student, Venetius Mota, postdoc, and Alexander and Christopher and Steve. Uh, current uh, trainees in the lab. My uh, dear colleague, Philippe Poussier, with whom I've been working on all the human anti-commensal antibody studies. I've trained as an endocrinologist. Um, Dan Frank at the University of Colorado, fantastic guy who's taught me almost everything I know about uh, 16S microbiome sequencing and helped to train us to do uh, the analysis ourselves. I, I mentioned Emma, great uh, microbiologist uh, Martin in, in Leipzig, with whom we did the initial uh, metabolome studies. Um, and our funders, including the JDRF. And I really appreciate your attention. Thanks for coming. Any questions? Yes. Um, hi. I have a question. Thank you very much. I have a question about the interaction between the gut Great question. The question is, you know, is there a, is there a, a pre-birth uh, uh, mechanisms by which it's being controlled? And I, I think so when you see autoantibody onset at nine months, you've got to be rolling back your. So there's that's a whole aspect of the biology that is not part of these Teddy studies or the diabetes study I mentioned, but it is part of a new study coming from down under uh, called India, uh, and it's groups in Melbourne, Adelaide, and Perth. And they are enrolling women uh, in, in pregnancy uh, because they have a first-degree relative with type 1 diabetes. That's just a, a small fraction of the, of the risk. As you know, there's a lot of uh, individuals who have no known relative, but they can be identified and they're motivated. 
So they are enrolling women from multiple centers across Australia in early stages of puberty, and they are adding uh, many different, both biospecimen, uh, you know, biometrics, uh, metabolic markers during pregnancy, obviously gestational onset diabetes, insulin resistance, all of those things will be collected. They're interested in um, preeclampsia in that setting, and uh, for which my understanding is we don't have very good uh, mechanistic understanding. Could there be inflammatory cues there as well? So they're actually starting in pregnancy, and then we'll be following on with those children for the first, I think, three to five years of life. I completely agree. There's perinatal pieces here. Done. Um, if for the germ-free mice, um, so I'm just wondering, how do you distinguish the effects that you're seeing that are due to the immune response versus other non-specific effects? Because other non-specific effects, like the, the guts are malformed, right, in the germ-free The guts mice. are malformed. Okay. And there's all these other mm -hmm. metabolic problems mm -hmm. with them. And although you lose the, um, the, the sexual, the difference between the sexes, you actually bring down the incidence of diabetes in the female, look like from your craft. Yeah, we, I mean, the mice, they grow more slowly. We have to breed them later. You know, there, there are a number of, there's, there's no question that the germ-free setting is bizarre. I mean, um, the, the guts are not malformed. They are they are maladapted in the sense that they, they have very poor leukocyte uh, populations, right? They're really impoverished for leukocyte populations. But there's no evidence that they have enterocyte dysfunction or leakage. That I, so I don't know if that's what you were getting at. And I don't mean to be an apologist for what's wrong with them. There's a lot of things wrong with them. So the experiment you want to do is to look at germ-free mice and then use like flutamide to block testosterone levels in a setting with no bugs and or try just, to tease it apart. Or have you looked at, I mean, is the immune response more robust in the autoimmune response more robust in the germ-free mice? We haven't looked at that specifically in the germ-freeze. In part, it's because we lost our germ-free access and we've now regained it. So there's, there's a long list of things we need to do now. It's a thankless task to run germ-free. It's really, really, really demanding. Um, but we, we should be able to get at those kinds of things. But all very reasonable points, and we don't know. So if my memory serves me, there was a paper from Martin Kriegel in the Mathis Benoit lab a number of years ago identifying a microorganism that was different between males and male and female mice. Are you thinking about the SFB paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy? They looked at sort of, it was really almost a segregation study. And they, they found that nod mice coming from some colony sources and not others had this SFB. And you have uh, excellent members of your own group working on, on this issue. And we know that SFB is very important for, uh, for imprinting uh, T-cell differentiation down to H17 lineage. So they looked at that. and I. Their conclusion, I think, uh, from those experiments and others they've done on the T-cell side, many, is that the, the whole TH17 lineage differentiation is not a big driver of uh, autoimmunity in the NOD model. Uh, at least CD4, you know, conventional alpha-beta T-cells toward TH17. But they did, so they did this segregation experiment to ask about SFB. Did they see a difference in the effect of SFB on males and females? I don't remember a dramatic one, but maybe they did. I, I didn't think they did, but, but they had that interest, and they had so they had colonies with low levels of SFB or no SFB they could detect in other colony that had SFB, and they they sort of looked for segregation of that bug with the autoimmunity traits. And in your metabolomic study, did you see any of the obvious players that are known to impact T-reg function and so on as being different? So you think about sh short-chain fatty acids, for example. We do doing those with a separate um, platform. This platform wasn't great for short-chain fatty acids. They, you know, they all have their pluses and minuses. So here we mostly worked with these longer-chain lipids, uh, and they, they're likely, interestingly, probably in, in, in collections, right, in globules of different kinds. So we're trying to do some fractionation there. So that the uh, short-chain fatty acids are going to be done now in the context of a broader screen. It's for the first part of your talk, um, for the gene uh, and LRP, now I can't remember yeah. the genes. The expression, is it just in the immune system or is it also in the beta cells? Um, oh, so there's a good question. We don't know yet whether it's expressed in beta cells. It's definitely, uh, a lot of these NLRPs are, are widely expressed, as you know, and NLRP3 is expressed in beta cells. Some recent uh, reports on that. So we're actually doing that now. 
uh, at least at the RNA level, we don't have a good antibody yet, but we do have a, a series of five CRISPR-Cas knockouts. So that will be very, very helpful uh, in trying to, to really define this versus anything that was flanking it in our uh, ever smaller regions, right? Uh, so don't, don't know yet, but it, it well could be expressed in beta cells, and, and the, I think the bigger question of beta cells as targets and the extent to which they've been ignored in a lot of type 1 diabetes research is a very important and good one. Uh, and that we need to understand. We've been looking in the islets to see if we can see any evidence of bacterial signatures. So far, we can't. Uh, you have to have some reasonable cutoff when you're doing PCR, right? But uh, we don't see any evidence for that yet, but they could be trafficked there and then leave. So the beta cells is up as an early target of all of these events it needs to be examined for sure. Last questions? Uh, um, the testosterone is from the microbiome, um, does the microbiome make other steroids and other... Oh, sorry, I, I think I wasn't uh, sufficiently clear. There is, we have absolutely no evidence that the testosterone is coming from the microbiome. And in fact, there's really very little evidence that any commensal organisms make a molecule that can bind with any reasonable affinity to antigen receptors. So I don't think that that's the source of the testosterone. I think that the source of the testosterone is the standard peripheral tissues that make it, the testis, uh, adrenals, ovary, um, but that the change in the microbiome is for reasons that we don't yet appreciate, altering uh, gene expression at some level, at some locus, to allow that to happen. But we don't have any evidence to support the bugs themselves making uh, sort of androgens uh, mimic. Thank you. Thank you very much.